Hello, my name is Michael McLennan and welcome to COVID Matters. Produced by COVIDAID, the UK's new national COVID-19 charity, this is a regular podcast in which experts speak to us about the key issues facing those affected by the pandemic. I'm delighted that our first guest is Dr. Nisreen Alwan, MBE, who is also one of the first appointees for COVID-AIDS Expert Advisory Panel, helping to guide the charity in the right direction. Nisreen is an Associate Professor in Public Health at the University of Southampton and an Honorary Consultant in Public Health at University Hospital Southampton. Her research area is maternal and child health. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she has focused on the recognition and quantification of morbidity from COVID-19, having initiated the call to count long COVID. She was awarded an MBE for services to medicine and public health during the pandemic in the 2021 Queen's New Year Honours, and was also named in the BBC 100 Women 2020 list. Here's our interview with Nazreen. I'll be back afterwards to tell you a little bit more about the charity. First off, it'd be great to know about the work that you were doing pre-lockdown and pre-COVID okay. and, then, and then how that changed. So yeah, I'm a public health academic um, and scientist and I, uh, my main research area pre-COVID was looking at uh, really maternal and child health. So uh, looking at really what happens in pregnancy and before pregnancy and, and you know, and, and more recently we looked a lot at kind of what happens between pregnancies. So for mums who have more than one child, how life changes for them and what can we do from a public health point of view to try and um, optimize health in this period for, you know, for their health and the children's health as well. And looking at kind of risk factors in that period and, and particularly really on inequalities as well and how our surroundings and environment and social and uh, economic factors shape um, what, what people call lifestyle factors, you know, things like, you know, diet and exercise and uh, smoking and alcohol and, and how this is really a complex area rather than a very straightforward yes or no choice of you just need to have a healthy lifestyle and, and you'll be fine and, and your kids will be fine. There are just so much um, influences um, um, and which makes people have different priorities and challenges and barriers. So really it's maternal child health, uh, focusing also on childhood obesity, trying to prevent child obesity is the big problem that we have across the world, but also in the UK and how we can kind of start preventing that very early on um, in life. Um, so that, that was really my um, area. I did a bit about, I think we did a bits and bobs about things like, you know, because I research pregnancy, so vaccination, uh, you know, and, and uh, pregnancy, et cetera. But my area is not infectious diseases. Uh, I think what happened when the COVID pandemic started, um, the first wave, and we, we, we were seeing the UK response was, was particularly different to many other countries at the time. We, you know, our reaction was delayed and there was a bit about you know, the testing stopped and there was a talk about the herd immunity and that was all very um, sh sh shocking, really, I think, for us in public health on the outside of, you know, the decision-making circle. And that's when I started getting involved, you know, to try and bring people um, with these public health exp expertise together and kind of talk about what, what, do, what does the UK response what should it look like? And we started um, producing some uh, kind of statements, outputs, letters, uh, open letters saying, you know, the UK should, kind of, we shouldn't see the evidence that the UK is basing the pandemic policy decisions on and we should, um, you know, and then we talked about 
you know, the delay in lockdown and how we need it, how we need to up the testing. So that was all in March. And then while I was having all of that commotion, obviously we're <laughs> all of us isolating at home, I also ha- developed COVID-19 symptoms and then, um, which wasn't really severe at all. It was on the on the mild side. I mean, just like a, it was a, a severe, like a flu-like illness, but it, it then didn't completely go away and, and it was kind of fluctuating and coming back. And, and that's when, um, I suppose the long COVID story started, and uh, um, and 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 come the summer, I uh, started, you know, writing formally about it, saying particularly with the hat, or the patient hat, but also with the public health hat, saying, well, nobody's talking about illness and morbidity, and what does that mean, and you know, what 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 does mild COVID nineteen mean? You've got all of these people. Obviously, by that time, there was the social media. Um, support groups emerging um, as well. Um, how are we measuring it? How are we responding to it? And that's sort of that's ha- that's how my kind of long COVID focus started. Mm-hmm. And then looking back on it, because it's over a year now, then how how did that start to grow? I think it obviously started with um, people on social media posting about them not recovering. Uh, people who weren't in these high risk, the so-called vulnerable groups, you know, um, not recovering. Um, And I think that was a lifeline, I think for me and and for other people, because there was no information, there was, you know, nobody was expecting this to happen to them and seeing it happen to other people, although you are very stressed out and anxious about it, gave you a bit of reassurance that you're not the only one in the world who's you know, not getting better from this virus. Right from the start, I was saying, mainly on social media as well, saying, well, we really need to, uh, we don't know what this virus can do. We know from other viruses, they're long-term health effects and nobody's talking about them and mm-hmm. um, and nobody's actually uh, accounting for them in the pandemic response. And then I, I wrote a piece in the BMJ in July, uh, what exactly is mild COVID-19? Uh, and and when I was writing it, so this was a piece where I was saying, well, why is nobody measuring this or, you know, talking about it? Why are public health system not measuring uh, disease and not just deaths and number of cases? And I was writing and thinking, surely, surely people have thought about this, um, you know, or do somebody must be doing something about it. So I remember the feeling saying, well, okay, I'll send it, but I'm, I might just look like a fool because somebody else has kind of written a similar thing <laughs> uh, about it, you know, in, in, in kind of in, in, in what I was proposing. But actually, once I got it published, it just had a um, a lot of people got really interested, had a lot of impact. People were, you know, messaging me, asking for translation or wanting to translate it to other languages, uh, you know, from across the world. And so there was this hunger of like, yes, we need to we need to know about this. We need to think about this, but actually no answers. And, uh, you know, from kind of the official narratives and, and the systems. And, and, and then I felt that, yeah, well, yeah, there is this, this gap and I need to continue doing that and continue to raise this and um this issue um and then and then um um i think that's how that's how so we started this social media hashtag i think it was in september 2020 it's called count long covid it's like we're not Mm. counting it and there's no statistics about it so obviously if it's just stories and anecdote that's easier to ignore and easier to ignore in planning and the public health messaging um and that was popular as well um in terms of the messaging um, so yeah, that was the that's that's how it started. 
And then we did some research, you know, we did a survey of people with long COVID um, to kind of describe, you know, what it looks like and, um, and you know, the characteristics of it. So what were the findings from that? Because I think there's still a lot of people who, for, for whom long COVID is one of those terms that they might have some sort of awareness that it's long term, but beyond that might not be too sure of what it can involve for people affected. Yeah, so it really varies in severity, but you, but the the best definition for it um, up until now is is not going back to your usual level of health and daily activities that you had before getting getting the infection, the acute inf- COVID infection, um, and that varies for people uh, in terms of how much it limits their activities, and there are actually some good. Office of National Statistics estimates around that in terms of does it limit your activity a lot or a little, uh, which has just been updated today and some new statistics came out today and, and quite a significant proportion of people say that they it, long COVID does limit their activity uh, quite a lot. The, the most common symptoms, I think we have some consensus about what they are now and they're mainly, a lot of it is, is fatigue, you know, which is not really just feeling tired, the normal tiredness is, you know, not being able to um, you know, do your, your normal stuff. It's, it's, it's kind of exhaustion. I mean, when we did the survey, we actually asked about exhaustion rather than fatigue, but because it's it's not straightforward what it means for a lot of people. Um, and then there's the breathlessness, uh, the muscle and the joint pains and the ch- chest pain or chest feeling of chest heaviness or pressure um, and um, dizziness, but also, also concerningly the cognitive problems where uh, people describe brain fog, poor memory, con- concentration, you know, losing their words, not being able to focus. Um, and actually, um, it seems that these symptoms, the cognitive function symptoms uh, in our survey, um, and I think in, in another patient-led research surveys, it se- they seem to kind of even get a bit more common uh, after the acute phase. And w- whether that is um, something happening after, whether because people, when they're acutely ill, they don't necessarily you try and use a lot of the cognitive abilities because they're try, you know trying to recover but then when they go back to work and they're active they, they that they realize that this is there uh but yeah i mean these are the symptoms and, the, and and a very common feature of long covid is that relapsing nature of it's not necessarily constant all the time you don't have it at the same level all the time you will have some much better days but then it could hit you back and that makes it very hard to predict you know, and plan your life, including your mm-hmm. work and caring responsibilities and your activities and social and leisure and all of that, because um, it, it, it kind of, it comes and goes or it fluctuates in the severity. And, and that's really difficult for, you know, with dealing with employers as well, because, you know, you can take a sick note once, you can go back to work, you feel you're up to it, and then it hits you back and it becomes mm-hmm. a cycle. And going into, you know, 2021, then you received an MBE. I think it was a, coll- a collection of things kind of in terms of my involvement with COVID-19, um, you know, in response to the pandemic. At the start as well, I mean, um, I was involved in, uh, uh, because we argued for the importance of, uh, of, of, of regular extensive testing to try and prevent the spread. Um, so um, I was involved in a saliva testing pilot in Southampton where we're you know, we were trying to test this is, I mean, this is now more widely spread about, you know, the testing and the routine testing, but at the time people weren't doing it. And we were um, seeing if it works that you could test people, even if, um, you know, they're asymptomatic um, and using um, easier methods like um, a saliva sample rather than the actual swab. 
that people do. So, so that's um, that that was um, another involvement, and that came from that initial activity of trying to bring, you know, public health academics um, 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 together and to to produce some solutions going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first wave. And so, over the past uh, few months or since the beginning of the year, how do you think the situation has changed in terms of? the recognition of long COVID and and the experiences of people who've been impacted? I mean, I, I certainly think, obviously, there is a bit, there's more awareness, far less than I would like it to be. There are many people who still don't know what long COVID is and, and what it means. I think people tend to know if they have um, somebody they know, like a friend or a family member um, who has it. But even sometimes in these instances, they can't really they might not be calling it long COVID. I think there might be a bit more awareness now, but far less than I think it, there should be. But it's it's much it's better than the first wave. The first wave is just like well, this is, doesn't exist. Um, so um, uh, you know when you, you know people were going to their doctors and and remember people in the first wave who didn't get admitted to the hospital didn't have access to testing, so they didn't have the confirmation that they had COVID, which is the lab confirmation, the test positive test. And that was very challenging because to say, well, I this is an effect of the infection. Well, then your actual experience of the acute infection is questioned. Um, and and then these symptoms, which, uh, you know, medicine wasn't really familiar with it following COVID-19, you know, the long term effect. They were maybe attributed to other things like being anxious. Uh, you know, stress or the effect of the lockdown, etc. And obviously, there is anxiety and stress. If you're experiencing this weird, you know, relapsing illness, and it's affecting your life, and and there's nobody that's telling you exactly what it is, when will it end? What's the treatment for it? For, sh- for sure, that will be produce anxiety and stress. Uh, but it 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 isn't um, in these people. It's not primary; it's a secondary to exper- experiencing this illness. And so that that was very hard. Uh, I think it's good now that there is more focus. And I think we, you know, did collectively as we, you know, the long COVID movement, I think we did a lot about raising awareness that lab confirmation shouldn't be used to discriminate uh, between people in terms of receiving care and support. And I think then there's more awareness about that. Even not in the first wave, I mean, up until today, testing, uh, there's like lots of disincentives for testing. People who, um, you know, um, if you are testing, I mean, if you're like a single mom, you've got children and you're on a low income or low paid job, you develop a bit of a, a flu like illness. If you get tested, that means you put, you know, um, not send your children to school. You have to look after them uh, you, and, and you have to stop working, whether you get sick pay or not, depending on the type of your job. That means social isolation. I mean, there are a lot of disincentives and barriers to actually go and order that test. But then if you don't and you develop long COVID, then there's the extra negative effect of, well, you probably didn't have COVID, so that's not long COVID, so it might be something else. And that cycle continues, um, you know, um, and that creates stigma as well. And, And the other thing I think for people with long COVID, I think it's important to say is if you do try and seek help and then you're questioned about your lived experience of what you're describing in terms of your symptoms and illness, then you then start to question yourself. And that's bad in a way that you start not talking, you start not seeking help, not talking about what you're going through, not only to your doctor, but but even maybe to your family 
friends, you know, if the attitude is like, oh, you're fine, you know, just get, get out a bit and, you know, try and, you know, try and forget about it. And, you know, even well, really well-meaning messages. But then the, the side effects that you, you internalize the stigma and you start questioning yourself and then not, not seeking help and support. And that becomes a vicious cycle. I think one thing that's really interesting as part of that is the community support. And I was wondering how it was for you becoming part of this community and being a very visible part of that. It's a double-edged sword a bit. I think it's very powerful to be to see how this community mobilization happens, particularly with people who are not well. You know, people long COVID are not well, but they're, you know, come together and they raise the profile of, of this illness for the benefit of everybody in society, I guess. And that's quite powerful and it gives you hope as well that, you know, things could change as a result of that particularly in, in the kind of environment we're in. And, and things have changed because of that. Me, others are vulnerable people. We will have periods where we don't want that extra spotlight. And we don't, why, you know, and feel like, why do we always have to share our stories and put ourselves out there all the time and actually being attacked again, because social media is quite a cruel place sometimes. And, and you know, and, and, you, and you, you know, you get attacked. People project their fear and ignorance on, on you as well. And I think that needs to be balanced. So when we talk about, you know, people being, you know, advocates and the, you know, community kind of movements, I think is that that really, it, it needs to be rewarded. That sort of attitude needs to be rewarded by the system. It can't carry on forever. Otherwise, you're just putting more load on people who are already vulnerable. And so what do you think are the challenges ahead uh, in terms of long COVID, the recognition of it, both in the short term and in the kind of longer term as well? I think we really need a good system so that we avo- avoid sort of postcode lotteries and the care of long COVID. So that for, for the exist, you know, for people with, you know, existing long COVID, we need to be to have an equitable system where everybody's getting a a, a good level of care, um, and that means you know clinical assessments and investigations, and then you know the rehab and and whatever kind of science could offer in terms of long COVID. So for that, we need really good care pathways and case definitions and diagnostic criteria and even if they're moving because the science is moving all the time we need to have some effort to establish that because at the moment it's very very variable who gets that diagnosis and who gets you know care and support and who doesn't it's really there's loads of individual variation i think we need to really um do a lot of research the research it's amazing what happened and we now have a vaccine the amount of you know what science did is really amazing within 2020 but uh but it was really focused uh, understandably so on the acute effects and trying to prevent deaths and severe disease but we really need to speed up the research on long covid because there's just this huge number of people who will have like the lives their lives have been impacted um and and they are the people who are supporting our society and economy you know working age people across all age groups um including you know long covid and children as well these are really important to have very urgent research priorities to uh, find out how to help them and then we really important for long covid to always remember it's not like we've got people with long COVID and that's it. People will be developing more long COVID if there's more infection. So a very big, big part of you know the activism around long COVID is like we don't want any more long COVID. Therefore, we will we want to prevent infection as much as possible, and that has has to carry on. I think for for future, I think I'd really be very really very sad and disappointed if we don't learn how we. Uh, tailor for these 
long-term effects and, and the disease and the illness for future pandemics. You know, our systems really need to look after the chronic as well as the acute and mm-hmm. the system, the system and, and that's not just the UK, I think, so, you know, across the world, this, the systems are not prepared to do that. But actually, the chronic has huge impact on society, chronic illness. So, yeah, we need to focus on that. And, 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 and I really think one last point I would like to say is I try and be optimistic all the time and see long COVID. There's a silver lining because we had the, a lot of people in a short space of time with this um, problem that I would hope that any um, research and treatment and um, any efforts um, to deal with long COVID would then um, also um, go to include other chronic conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome and ME and things like fibromyalgia. A lot of conditions have been neglected largely. And and that's why I think partly maybe why we are with long COVID, because we post-viral disease in the past haven't been really given enough attention, although it it, it is disabling for many, many people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then final question is, if you were to have a piece of advice or information for the audience to take away, what would that be? I think um, if you do have, talking about long COVID, if you think you might have long COVID, please do seek help and advice and don't be put off if there's if you encounter dismissal about symptom, your symptoms or what you're experiencing or your story, because know that many other people have had that and, and people have persevered really and um, and, and talked about that. So seek, you know, help from other people and other resources. And it might be the support group Long COVID can can offer that sort of sort of peer support as well. I don't know. I think in terms of like in the pandemic in general, I think it's really it, people. It's just been such a hard uh, 15 months or so on people with all the restrictions they've had, um, all the sacrifices they, they've made. And we're very, very close in terms of the vaccination program. Uh, but um, it's important not to waste all of that effort and, and, and try and really get, I suppose that's the public health message, you know, get people vaccinated as soon as possible with the two doses of vaccine um, and, and, and not rush into things, I suppose, until, until we get that because we don't want any more long COVID, for sure. And, and that's something that's, again, even now is missing from the public messaging uh, with it focusing only on hospitalization and, and deaths as an outcome. Um, mm. We really don't want the infection itself because 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 we don't know who's going to, we still really don't know who's going to develop long COVID and who doesn't. We don't have the data to to tell us that in terms of the accurate risk for, for, for long COVID. So um, it's trying to avoid, you know, getting the infection in the first place. Thanks so much to Nisreen for her time. If you haven't heard of us, COVID Aid is the new UK charity dedicated to helping all those adversely affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We want to help anyone who is struggling but may not have found the correct resources or support system to help. By building an empowering and caring community, we provide a safe space where people's voices can be heard and where you can gain access to support that's specific to your needs. We'd love to have you as part of our community, so please visit covidaidcharity.org. We'll be back soon with our next episode, and until then, please take care.